welcome back for another episode of Angam Reads. We've covered many genres on this program, many different types of stories, but we all came to the realization that a genre we haven't touched as much as one we're all quite fond of. Mystery. And with my much more industrious colleagues doing a bit of research, we've stumbled across the Agatha Awards, honoring mysteries each year of a certain type that we'll get into here in a minute. BJ, you were the one that uh, really recommended this. What is the story we're starting out with today? Well, I, I chose from the six that we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Recommending is an interesting choice. Uh, we're doing uh, The Blue Ribbon uh, by Cynthia Kuhn. Um, this is very unlike the other ribbon stories that we might have done before, um, in that it is about a first place, which seemed a little bit, uh, appropriate to do for a first outing into this, uh, this awards. Yeah. And by, by way of background, the Agatha Awards are given out each year to what I believe are referred to, and Sarah, you can clarify this, as cozy or traditional mysteries, which I don't really know what either of those are. Yeah, I still, I, don't, uh, I still don't know what a traditional mystery is, but I do have some insight on what a cozy mystery is. Maybe a traditional <laughs> mystery has a mystery in it. <laughs> well, hmm. eh, we'll debate whether this story meets that, meets that qualification or not. But uh, for those that aren't familiar, Agatha Christie is famous as the Grand Dame of Mystery. She's probably the most, I believe, if I remember correctly, she is the best-selling fiction writer of all time, having sold something like two billion different books um, over the course of her career and thereafter. Wow. And so the awards are rightfully named in honor of her. I was going to say, if you okay. listen to this podcast and you haven't heard of Agatha Christie, I'm really confused as to, like, <laughs> if you actually read any <laughs> We accommodate first-time readers of any type. Fair enough. Um, but we like to do certain segments on this podcast, and the first one we have a lot of fun starting out with is Sarah discussing her drink her drink recommendation of the episode and often uh, one-star reviews of the story to kind of get us going on our points of criticism. Sarah, do you have anything for us? Well, I'm going to eschew the one-star reviews this time, but before I get into any of that, Spencer, I have heard that um, you and my husband are doing a little a new little foray into um, the world of chess. Can you tell us about it? You've also heard that I hate marketing, but I will try. <laughs> uh, the talent doesn't do the ads. <laughs> there are other people to do that. Um, but yes, on our, uh, our sister Mangum Talks TV channel, we are going through the Queen's Gambit. In our episode-by-episode episode review, discussing events that occur, our favorite quotes, our favorite scenes, and me going on a kind of Wikipedia-slash-internet research spiral on whatever in the episode I found particularly interesting to discuss in far more excessive detail. We're uh, currently on the second episode, we're having quite a bit of fun with it, and we hope you will join us to have fun as well. And I will say that I have watched The Queen's Gambit, um, I'm watching the episodes again as Lee does his notes, which has been really fun for me, but the uh, the Wikipedia spiral, Spencer, chef's kiss gold this time around. <laughs> it, it is quite lovely, and uh, it's kind of funny that, that Terry pawns off a good chunk of the episode uh, onto you for that. <laughs> You know, he asked me to research the history of chess, and that was just catnip for me. I will spend 25 minutes discussing that anytime. He, he did know what he was getting into in these moments. <laughs> I, I just want so, there to be some sort of intersection with your professional career in talking about Castle Doctrine. <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's any number of legal thrillers we eventually can watch in that program. We just haven't quite gotten there yet. <laughs> Oh, but Cass I understand your pun now. It took me a second. Okay. I love you, Spencer. That was the This best. is how the brain works. But passing it back to somebody else that can talk now while I stop watching, uh, Sarah, what was your drink recommendation for this episode? Well, so we are, as BJ said, we are reading the Blue Ribbon. Um, there are some pies involved. They are generally of the apple variety, if I'm remembering correctly. So I am, perhaps against my better judgment, drinking an apple pie margarita. Yep. That Boy. is not where I expected that drink to go even when you started with the m <laughs> i did look up apple pie martinis first um yeah. but it's been and a weird probably week. all used apple liqueur <laughs> and we're just boring. yeah it was not i didn't want to go buy an apple liqueur for, I, I, it was not appealing to me so i when you yeah. type into google apple pie m something this also comes up um and i do actually really like a margarita so i thought well this is We'll give this a try. I haven't. I don't think I've ever done a margarita on this show. Um, so, um, it and it it actually is really good. So, what's in it? Um, 
So it is equal parts of tequila, although I'm using a mezcal because that is what I had, and I also prefer mezcal um, <laughs> to tequila. So, so it's a burnt apple pie. It is a burnt apple pie, which is <laughs> also on brand. So mm. there we go. Um, Spencer, shout out to you. And in fact, shout out to our constant disappointment in you. Uh, two <laughs> ounces of Fireball, which is still in my house. Okay. Because of you. How is that? You bought it. For you. I just did for not drink. For you. It was your. It was a gift, Spencer. Okay. For those that aren't familiar by listening to our other podcasts, every now and then Sarah likes to inflict Fireball upon me. No. And last time. No, Terry does. Mm. Terry does. You get amusement out of it. Don't pass this on to other people. Everybody gets amusement out of it, yeah. Spencer. You, you like pinning the blame on any one person is well, just irresponsible. Well, yes, but this last time, Sarah, I remember it you that handed me the bucket. I emphasized the term bucket. I was just I was full of lo- very excited that there was a party bucket involved. Yes, <laughs> there was a party bucket full of a form of alcohol that I just despise. <laughs> It is candied cinnamon liqueur in all the ways that that just sounds noxious, and I was expected to drink the entire bucket the last time that I was there. Well, you did not. It was many bottles in a bucket. Like, like, let's let's not blow this out of the proportions that it is somewhat reasonably in. <laughs> the haunting vision I have in my dreams every now and then, it kind of imagines like an oil drum, but I imagine in reality it was smaller than that. It's like an ice cream tub. It was a big ice cream tub, and I got about a third through it, I think, maybe. Well, I couldn't taste, by day two, I couldn't taste anything but cinnamon we were going to have to eat. Well, the tiny bottles are still occasionally emerging in corners of my house. It wasn't helping that wherever we went, you guys would keep them in your pockets so that I'd, like, get out of the car and you'd just hand me two before we'd go we in to have something to eat. We were trying to get rid of them. <laughs> so. Oh. There's a lesson in here uh, this year, I think. Two ounces of, of tequila, or mezcal in this case, two ounces of um, Fireball, an ounce and a half of Grand Marnier, um, two ounces of fresh, fresh squeezed lime juice, which is really where the margarita kind of gets going here, um, two ounces of apple juice, a little bit of honey, a little bit of cinnamon, and then it's garnished. Well, it's really the glass is rimmed with a cinnamon sugar mix, and then it's garnished with a sliced apple. Um, and I will say I to, have... go ahead, Spencer, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to, I was going to give you credit. Um, this is probably the prettiest drink you've made in quite some time, particularly compared to the eight pretty much identical drinks that preceded it. Listen, the machine learning algorithm likes brown drink. <laughs> um, or when you combine enough colors, you get brown. And yes. so it's just sort of a problem that everything has. And I will say that this this is a little bit brown. It actually looks kind of like an apple cider. Um, mm-hmm. But with the, the sugared rim and the apple garnish, I do think... I do think it is particularly pretty, so thank you. Thank you for that, Spencer. And I, I will say that this is, this is a delicious drink. I am very much enjoying it. Um, mm. And I will say I have a couple of those little airplane bottles of Fireball left by you, Spencer. <laughs> um, but because I don't know if it would be quite, um, quite this effective with just the tequila, but certainly with the smokiness of the mezcal, you mm. don't get that sickly sweet flavor of the fireball. Um, so actually, as a mechanism for using up the fireball, this is a pretty good one. You, you know, in any other year, any other year, all that fireball would have been gone. Because I would have seen you guys like four times compared to, what we, to the no times of visiting this year. And we would have pulled it out of our pocket and given it to you. <laughs> <laughs> it would have disappeared, yes. And, and there would have been a lot of... Uh... Trixie Hobbs is coming around. <laughs> but when we are all vaccinated and you can come back up here or we can come down to Florida, I might actually save one of these little airplane bottles of Fireball and make one of these for you, Spencer, because this is very good. And I think it is a palatable way to consume Fireball. Sarah, as I've said before, if you ever want to make cocktails for us, I will happily <laughs> enjoy them, even if it is the purposefully bad ones. <laughs> Uh, noted, Spencer. <laughs> noted. But I, I believe you said that uh, we're not doing one-star reviews this time and that you're moving on to a different kind of segment yeah. for uh, this episode. Well, I did. Um, 
you know, I have read a couple of the stories that we're reading for um, for this series, and I was very excited about reading nominees for the Agatha Christie Award because I love a cozy mystery. I love Agatha Christie. Um, I love that kind of genre of curl up by the fire. We are in midwinter here as we read these. Um, curl up by the fire and kind of do a do a a gentle whodunit. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was I was very excited about this. I've read a couple of the stories and was very confused <laughs> about by who done it. I like I, I think it's relatively <laughs> straightforward. I'm just saying not really hidden. about the process that by which we got to who done it. So I did, um, mm-hmm. and it was actually um, sort of the timing was fortuitous because a, another book book podcast that I will not name because we do not give free advertising on the show. Um, had done a Christmas special that was a sort of cozy mystery holiday themed novel for um, for their Christmas episode, and they did a little bit of a primer on what a cozy mystery is. And I thought I would would crib off of that a little bit just to kind of get a sense of what we're supposed to be reading in this series of mm-hmm. in this series of short stories. And so I am taking from um, a Publishers Weekly article by Amanda Flower um, called "What Exactly Is a Cozy Mystery." So um, there are a couple of elements that really define a cozy mystery. It's the, the, the term was coined in kind of the late 20th century, um, but obviously it has, the, the, the genre itself has existed for, for long before that. But the couple of things that really define it are the idea that there is an amateur sleuth, an unsuspecting victim, a quirky supporting cast, and a trail of clues and red herrings. Like, those are the four main ingredients, (laughs) according to Amanda Fowler. Um, Okay. And so, the main takeaway and lesson of a cozy mystery is that the average person can make a difference. And so, in a cozy mystery, like, one of the hallmarks is that the person solving the mystery is someone who is not a professional detective, who is not a police officer, um, who might be might be a private investigator, although of the sort of most amateur type, um, but also might be a sort of parish priest or a l- l- ladies' knitting circle or something like that. Um, the- so is the name of the rose a cozy mystery? <laughs> it is... Um, well, let's, let's see. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. Um, the other, the other thing about a cozy mystery is what drives the, the villain or the whodunit in the cozy mystery. So the culprit is never really like just an evil person as you frequently get in like hard boiled detective fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is a person who has been pushed to their limits and who believes that their their only means of kind of getting out of whatever situation there is, is by committing whatever crime is under investigation. Um, mm-hmm. And so in the same way that our kind of detective is relatable, our villain is also relatable. Um, in the idea that, like, anyone could potentially get pushed to these extremes. Right. This, this, these are not stories about dyed-in-the-wool psychopaths or anything along yes. those lines. At least, or even, like, hardened criminals, with... really. Mm-hmm. Um, Anybody could be pushed to murder. It's perfectly a reasonable response to whatever situation you might be in for long enough. Listen, I don't know how many British mysteries you've watched in the world, <laughs> that, that but the BBC okay, has, like, enough. entirely convinced me. Um, okay, so uh, other things to take note of is that, um, you know, the average person takes on the big challenge, right? And mm-hmm. they frequently do that surrounded by a group of people who is who is supporting them in some way, whether they're actually going kind of on the investigations with them and, and doing that, or if they're just kind of there doing their own hijinks in some way. Um, yeah. But then also key to the idea of a cozy mystery is the um the notion of fair play and this is like both fair play in the world of the mystery but also in the way that the story that the reader interacts with the story 
right? So that mm-hmm. there are going to be red herrings that are meant to throw you off the scent as you go through. But the clues and red herrings are put there specifically for the reader to decipher. So that is part of the relationship, and it is a kind of trust-building exercise in the relationship as well. Um, okay. And then... I would say the last important thing about a cozy mystery is that it is written in such a way that you as a reader are supposed to be able to, to be able to go on the journey with our protagonist and investigator that going back to those clues and red herrings that like those, those are there intentionally so that you and the protagonist um, can kind of go on the investigative quest together and can piece it out going forward you know i gotta say uh apparently malice domestic limited who does the agatha awards is applying a pretty broad definition of cozy mystery for all of these stories that we've read to fit into that category i I would say so let's do a like i want to go back to my very beginning of this discussion and do the quick recap of the four things that you need for a cozy mystery because i think those are going to be key (laughs) in our discussion in this episode and in episodes going forward all right ready one, mm-hmm. an amateur sleuth. Sure. Two, an unsuspecting victim. Okay. Three, a quirky supporting cast. Mm-hmm. And four, a trail of clues and red herrings. And then we have some kind of things and discussion around that, um, about kind of the role of the reader that I think merit discussion as well. But those are the four main things we should be looking out for, for a cozy mystery. I understood. Well... Similar to what we've done with prior awards compilations that we've got, we've gone through, like the Hugo Awards, the Nebula Awards, we're going to be going through each of the nominees for Best Short Story with the Act of the Awards for, was this 2019 or 2020 that we're going through? I think through? this was 2019. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, working our way through and eventually in the end assessing what were our overall opinions and whether we agree with who ultimately won the award. Uh, it was actually 2020, by the way. Oh, well, then never yeah. mind. Sorry about that. <laughs> Easy enough. Uh, we're starting with the Blue Ribbon, which, you know, I had some reservations about doing, I mean, I look forward to doing mysteries, look forward to doing those kind of thrillers, but I've never really done many, you know, like, real, real short stories, uh, in terms of that setting. And seeing this was seven pages made me a little bit apprehensive of, like, how much could be accomplished in that level of short time. Fair enough. Um, but it does make the recap easier. It does. Um... Why don't we jump into the recap quickly and then we can discuss <laughs> the seven pages that we read. Yeah, Spencer, would you like me to set a two-minute timer for you? <laughs> no, no. I like inflicting that on you, not the other way around. Um, plus, we have never done a two-minute recap on this program before. Uh, well, the story starts in Crocus Lake, I think, New York, uh, upstate New York, which I double-checked is not a real place, though there is a Crocus Lane, which is situated around a hell of a lot of lakes in upstate New York, so maybe. Maybe this was um, just a typo. <laughs> but the, 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 the author, uh, Cynthia Kuhn, is a professor of English at Metropolitan State University of Denver, um, which teaches literature, writing, and film, and does a lot of crime and mystery stuff as well. So, yeah, her connection to upstate New York, but it feels very generic upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, our two main characters, I think, are practically other than a mayor calling in or a next door neighbor shop, our only two characters are uh, Delia, Delia and Ellie. Yeah, Delia and Ellie. Delia? Interesting. What? I would say Delia. It's fine. No, go ahead, Spencer. Delia, Delia, whatever you prefer. <laughs> Uh, who together are old friends for reasons mostly of history rather than actual reasons, uh, who together run a pie and bakery shop. And what we pick up pretty early on, um, Delia Burns, uh, is a flexible, yeah, she's a (laughs) flexible definition of friend. She is very accomplished, very skilled, wins at everything she sets her mind to, but as a result of that, kind of rubs everyone wrong that she interacts with. She mostly sets her mind to taking away the nice things that other people have. Yeah, we pick up more on that later as we go. And we certainly all know those people, right? Oh, very much so, yes. Uh, 
of where I really enjoy the initial descriptions of the, of the process of what a grudge is like. I like the description of being like stones sinking slowly into cold green waters of a northern lake. Too many, and you've got yourself a wall. Hmm. And that's the philosophy our main character takes, supposedly. Delia Burns, on the other hand, lives on that kind of grudge and indignation. It powers her. It motivates her. Anything that is in, anything that is viewed as an opposition to her or not even vaguely standing in the way of her achieving her goals is something that she will never forget nor forgive. Leading a lot of people to question why our main character is friends with her and has been friends for so long. To which... She really just kind of says, you know... I guess she just kind of just kind of shrugs and just says, eh, we've been friends a long time, these things endure. Sure. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's just interesting because uh, Ellie says that, but I mean, we get a l- more a little bit later. But basically, everything that Ellie ever had either got taken away or Delia took it away from her. Yeah, it, purposefully. It's one, thing, it's one thing I like about the structure of this story is that it slowly opens yeah. in terms of how it goes. Of where mm-hmm. in it, we initially get a. The idea that she's a long-suffering friend, but she's loyal, and she gave, and you know, she got a job from Delia. So great. Um, yeah, it does. It unlock- does start out almost like a uh, like a kind of Hallmarky kind of movie where Ellie is is the long-suffering friend of Delia, and people ask how she puts up with it. But my impression in reading the beginning of the story was sort of like. Well, we're just going to get a quirky, like, sort of hard-to-deal-with business owner who just, like, actually knows her mind and knows what she wants to do, and, like, maybe sometimes that leads her astray. That is, mm mm-mm. That is not what no, we, we just had to turn a page or two, yeah. and, to, and then yes. we find out what it really is. Oh, a page, yeah. BJ. A two pages gets us to the end of the story. <laughs> yeah. We, I'm we have reading hope. it on my phone, <laughs> so I get a bunch more Kindle, quote-unquote, pages. Wait. We have hopes at the start of this that, again, it's being one of those quirky little friendships of where nobody else understands them, but they're joined at the hip, and that, that, that it works for them in a way that nobody else can ever really function Maybe on. these are the but, these are the investigative team that is going to go solve whatever mystery it is that we have here, and their strengths will complement each other. Yeah, the the Thelma leaves hopefully without a cliff at the yes. end. Maybe. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, that disappears quickly. I mean, we find out, as you guys have been hinting at, that... Delia is not about sharing anything in her life, not things that she wants, not things that she achieves, nor about allowing her friend to achieve anything that might compare to her, uh, including even going down to husbands. Yes. That when, yep. when Delia decided that she wanted the boy that Ellie had been crushing on for years, she took him, regardless of the fact that it was Ellie's fiancé at the time. She wanted him, she got him, and like so many other things, Ellie doesn't hold a grudge. Ellie just sweeps everything under the rug. It's fine. She's my friend. She's There's let no me take part in everything. It's just not our, worth it. No, no. And, you know, she always lets me join her on these things, and that's generous. That's great, right? And all this starts being framed in the present sense around a pie contest. Apparently, this small town does one of those world-famous pie contests that Delia has won every single year for the last 29 years. And it's clearly, like so so many other things she does, invested her life and soul into the process of winning again. But this year, Ellie decides she's going to put in an entry, and I don't even know if she's fully sure why that she does. She almost feels compelled to do it to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Well, she found her mom's recipe for cherry pie... Yes, her mom, who died on advice from Delia. Or at least advice from Delia to ignore her, her the condition she was suffering from. But no, there's no grudge over that, of course. No, it's, these things happen. But her, she doesn't tell Delia that she's entered her pie into the contest. She can't find a way to tell her. It's an awkward subject. And so instead it's Delia who discovers it when it's already been made and already been put in the box with, her, with Ellie's own name on it to submit it into the contest. First thing she does is set up a box right next to it so she can make her own and put it right there, <laughs> right away to go. Yep. 
Um, and so we sort of like jumped back and forth a little bit, I think, um, because I think it was like the year before that, or was it this this year that she decided to embroider winter on her apron and, you know. Yeah, I think it was in the in the wake of the last win. Right, in the wake of the last win, and she's like, well, you know, let me show all of the trophies that I've gotten for, for making pies, and, and, you know, it's not, it's not that you're a loser, Ellie, it's just, yeah, I'm the winner. And, you know, let's remember, these two work together. Mm-hmm. These, tronies, these trophies are lining their joint shop, where only one of the two employees has a sign saying, as an embroidered winner on her apron. It's only natural that Ellie looks down and imagines it says loser there. Yes. But still. Um, so she had, finds her mother's old recipe, um, a recipe that has clearly a whole mess of emotions caked into it now because Pied of into her it. mother. I prefer to use the actual expression, but yes, that works too. Mm-hmm. Um, it quickly gets more complicated, though, when not only does Ellie submit her pie, but it succeeds in terms of it gets into the finalists along with Delia. And any other human person would look at this and go, you know, this has my, been my best friend for years. She's the only person in the world that actually tolerates me. I should be happy along with her success because it doesn't in any way take away from mine or my potential of still winning this. But no. Delia immediately takes this as a personal affront. Even when Ellie comes to her and upon being confronted and seeing that Delia's face is just wrapped up in a glare, congratulates her. Delia can only respond, why on earth would you do this to me? I mean, oh, but of all things to say, it's not like saying congratulations there is ever going to net a, oh, well, you're being gracious about this. This is clearly <laughs> not the the way it was intended. Um, oh, but I'm sorry, Spencer, I interrupted you. No, no, you're fine. You know, I think this is, this is, a, this is just a recap that needs interruptions because that's kind of how this is structured at times. Um, but... Ellie kind of speaks her mind for the first time, possibly ever in their relationship, given that she apparently just sat on the idea that her fiancé was stolen by her best friend, and just says, well, for why she did this, it wasn't about you for once. Mm-hmm. Which, as described in terms of a, a breath so sharp it could, it could have cut glass, shatters kind of a lot of what remains of their relationship in a way that Ellie doesn't even realize yet. And I would... We don't get a lot of the background of these two characters, but I would lay money on the idea that Ellie is Midwestern in this moment. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very possible. And a yes. transplant. Mm-hmm. And yes. Not yeah. To Taboot, yeah. Like, transplant to the East Coast, and it's just like, oh, well, I guess people are just like that here. Yeah. Her whole not building grudges thing is more, it seems like it's more more of an idea of, I'm not confrontational to the nth degree. Yes. Um, because clearly the grudge is building, otherwise it wouldn't be mentioned. Yeah, mm-hmm. there, there's, a, there's a distinct difference in my mind between, you know, holding a grudge versus not pointing out someone that they've hurt you. Those are different things. Mm-hmm. You can not hold a grudge and still point out to people, that was kind of a dick move you just did right Or now. you can decide not to point out what they've done to you and hold a grudge, which is... Very natural to certain types of people in the world. (laughs) But no, Ellie does not hold grudges. There's no issue there. No. That's no no way motivating her Mm decision-making here. But before that possible plot thread goes in that direction, instead, the next morning, you know, having gotten into the finalist pool for best pie, apparently they make a second pie to submit, and the Blue Ribbon receives a call, which I had to fight in my mind to not imagine they sell beer at this place every time I heard them say Blue Ribbon, but I worked through it. Uh, but apparently this is a small enough town that the mayor actually supervises the Lake Bake, mm-hmm. who calls to inform Ellie that unfortunately there is a bit of a situation. Y'all, what happened to the judges when they tried the uh, Ellie's second round of pie? Well, the pellet with the poison was in the pie. <laughs> with the cherries. Um, uh, yeah, so all of the judges fell sick, like, one by one, like dominoes. Violently ill. Uh, uh, and clearly, you know, the mayor knows that Ellie didn't add anything to it. I mean, there, there is this sort of sense that, like, 
everybody knows how much of a terror that Del- Delia is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it almost feels like the mayor's going like, okay, I guess Delia poisoned everybody because it's your pie, but like, we still have to withdraw you. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you guys about that. How much do you guys read this as the mayor not only informing Ellie, but also providing a certain degree of warning to her about what happened? Yeah, I don't. I would say on first read, I I decided to take this as at, at face value, mm-hmm. which is the mayor was simply reporting that the judges were ill, mm-hmm. and that it was. I think that the kind of surface layer of this is that the judges were ill. It was Ellie's pie that did it, and mm-hmm. they think it's a mistake. They're not holding it against her. They don't think it's like a thing. Um, right. But, like, she needs to know. Right. And, like, I it, it, took it like that on, on first read. I think that is a perfectly legitimate read, possibly more likely. It's mostly just how much you read into the point of when he cuts her yes. off. Of when she's good person that she is. We have no evidence that Ellie's just not the best of people. Yep. Uh, other than being a floor man of a person. But she, first response is, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know I didn't. And before she can even complete that, he cuts her off and says, of course yes. not. Yeah, that, that's either, you it's know... It's what the tone town. of that, of course not, is. Right. Yes. It's either, yes. of course not, or of course not. Yes. It, it, it's either, we both know what actually happened, or I'm just going to cut you off right there, because, you know, these thi- let's just It's either, we both know what right. happened, or these things happen. Well, the, the mayor <laughs> either knows Delia, or doesn't, and it's not 100% clear, but we know he has to. Yes. So, because she's won it for 20 years and he presides over it. So, I, yeah. do do other people actually enter pies, I guess, is the other question. I don't know why you would in this situation, quite honestly. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, where if you did, would Delia just refuse you service at her store just to know that you even... A hundred percent. But also, doesn't it feel like there should be a sort of, like, she's a professional pie maker. She's also a professional petty person. Well, yeah, but, well, uh, but no, I mean, shouldn't there be, oh, like, you mean different, in terms of di- different competitions? I mean, I guess there are only five people in this town, so it doesn't matter. But <laughs> I would also guess that the reason that she's a professional pie maker is she's won the blue ribbon at this pie contest. Yeah, like, so she, a, a she couple started years in a row. winning and then opened the bakery. Right. I, I, I also fair. picture this... Bi- with, with how big of an event they describe this, I kind of also picture this being like every small town in the area, somebody in that town submits a pie. So it may have even started just, you know, individual local people, but it now may even be rival shops or to a certain degree competing now. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. this were happening in in England, this would be a sort of women's institute kind of thing that was going on where everyone would be entering their pie. Mm-hmm. Right. But I also imagine this is like... the. The best pie in Hillsborough, where like there aren't, there are going to be some people that are like entering. Like you know, it's kind of a small town, yeah. And so it's like she's going to put that up on our shop, but does it really mean anything? And people are going to be there for whatever reason, and be like, oh, okay, it's the best one in in the town, and she gets to say that. So like I don't know, it, 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 I'm kind of two minds here whether she's actually a particularly good pie maker or just the best in the 20 people that are there. I think she's the best in the 20 people that are there. Like, I think that this is very much a small town. I think in some ways it's even, the fact the story is even more effective if it is that petty. Mm-hmm. If it is just a very much small town contest that does not matter that much, but she's still, that Delia's still willing to go to these ends to not even lose that kind of thing. Yes. So tell us about these ends, Spencer. Well... The call ends with um, Ellie just kind of saying, I don't care about, you know, being removed from the contest. I just want the judges to be okay. Again, good person that she is. And the mayor says, you know, we'll call you back, but you should know your bakery's not going to work out very well from here because of this. Because you are the co-owner and you just, by all appearances, poisoned a whole collection of judges. Kind of hurts your reliability with customers going forward. Ellie has no doubts at any point as to what the hell happened maybe has some confusion in her mind as to how exactly it occurred or what exactly was the means to an end, but she goes right to the person that she knows is the source of this. Yeah. And interestingly, uh, there's the 
back and forth about, you know, what secret ingredient did you add? And it's like, my secret ingredient? Well, I'm never going to tell you. And it's like, no, you, all right, to my pies. And it's like, well, I figured it needed something similar, like a secret ingredient, just not the same one that I have. Drano, or something along those lines. Who the hell knows? But it's clear that uh, Delia poisoned the pies with something that she assures Ellie was not deadly. Probably. But it's just been nauseating. They'll be fine. And... One good sabotage deserves another, Spencer. Yeah. Delia can't take this as a small slight. She is literally arming herself with a tire iron and approaching in anger, as if the mere fact that she is now one, because she, you know, she has to assume there's going to be blowback from this, not only on Ellie... Um, she now intends to inflict harm on her oldest friend for this most serious of betrayals. And it comes to a confrontation, and the confrontation ends really damn quick. I would say. Yo. You know, I, I was pretty fond, fairly fond of the story up until this point, but this is a really abrupt resolution to the mystery. Not that there ever really is really a mystery of sorts. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll talk about that. But um, Delia approaches. So nice. she, she fully intends to go, you know, Tanya Harding on Ellie right now. And oh, good reference. I like instead, that. <laughs> she instead slips on the ice, trips, hits her head on the stair, and the tire iron flies up in the air and falls on her head, almost comically styled. Yes. She gets to gurgle out Ellie and go limp, and then's when I start to like the story again, as I like kind of how it resolves, of where Ellie starts to make a, a approach toward her, and then all the grudges she's always denied float around her like a hazy mist. She lowers her arm, says, be well, Delia, and walks away, saying, like I always said, there's no point in holding a grudge. Mm-hmm. Well, and she doesn't need to anymore. No, and instead she takes one of the blue ribbons that Delia was so looking forward to, you know, tying everywhere to celebrate one of their two victories, and ties it into her own braid of her hair. And the story ends. Yep. So, this was short. This was the first entry in what's going to be a larger collection. Y'all, what did you think? BJ, it go was ahead. Short. <laughs> BJ, what do you think? It was short. Yes. Um... So I would say on the plus side, it it was reasonably well written. Um, It told a relatively convincing story about two people. Um, I think that's about all I can (laughs) say about it. (laughs) I mean, like there isn't even bad stuff to say about it other than it didn't follow a brief of a mystery it's it's a short story where somebody died. There's just a lot missing. Yeah. I mean, I guess the mystery could be, why does anybody talk to Delia um, <laughs> ever? Like, how they ended up in this situation. But that's not resolved. That isn't, like, there, there's, there. to have a mystery, you have to solve it at the end, and it isn't solved. Um, so, I don't know. I guess, I think this is a short story with a death. Um, and and unlike uh, certain other ones, you don't learn anything. You just do it. I mean, <laughs> you know, at, at least with other shorter stories with deaths in them, like you can grow as a person, like Bridge to Terabithia. But here, you just sort of have a thing that happened. <sighs> Sarah, what do you think? <laughs> Would you like to talk about Bridge to Terabithia for a while, Spencer? No, no, I'm good. Okay. Thank you. Let's continue on. So I have to say, like when I the, on first reading of this story, um, I've actually mellowed in my opinion of this story. <laughs> um, partially because, like, I actually part of the reason I was really excited about doing the Agatha Christie Awards is that I I love a cozy mystery. Mm-hmm. I think I'm actually, like, a pretty astute reader of A Cozy Mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, oh, like, doing this in a short story format, that will be that will be really fun. We'll get a kind of bite of it. We'll get to dip in and out of, of these kind of um, settings and scenarios and places and kind of solve the mysteries along with people. Like, that'll be, that'll be pretty cool. My first reading of the story, I was so out on everything 
I spent two, <laughs> probably a week, telling people that these were the worst stories I've ever read. Okay, Delia. I have, thank you. I have mellowed. I've mellowed a little bit on it. Um, mm-hmm. And part of the reason I wanted to give us a definition of a cozy mystery to begin our series on these short stories is because so few of them, I believe, actually fulfill what a cozy mystery is supposed to be, which is yeah. my deepest concern about these stories as we move forward. Um, because I do think, like, I had blown past the fact that this story was, like, not badly written um that there were like kind of interesting characters going on to the idea that it was not doing what the genre is supposed to do yeah Yeah. so fast that i was out on the entire story i could not bring myself around to it it's not even that it's like subverting genre expectations or anything (laughs) there's just kind of gaps it seems yes there are just gaps now, on, on kind of second and third read, and on our, in light of our discussion on, in your recap, Spencer, I will say that there is, there is some really good buildup in this story. There, there are some kind of fingers going out into interesting directions. And the ending itself is not bad. Mm-hmm. There's just no mystery. Mm-hmm. As we discussed in... Um, in the definition of a cozy mystery, there are there are no clues, let alone red right. herrings. Well, I mean, you could say, sort of say that this is like everything about it is a red herring, and it's sort of like if, if this is you know one of the only stories that does this, it's a fun subversion of a cozy mystery. I expand, please. So you have the setup of a cozy mystery, like at the very beginning, like, you know, if you don't like start reading into Delia's being terrible at the the very beginning. Yes. Right. You have this, you know, these two people like, and, and if like a murder happened or something else, then you quickly get to like where you expect to go. This is a sleepy town where the most interesting thing that happens all year is a pie contest mm-hmm. that the same person wins every year. Sure. But we don't, we don't get any of that. And so this is sort of like a, you know, it's taking tropes and turning them every step of the way. It's, it just doesn't succeed at that. Like, it, I, it could have been that. It just isn't. I just don't think it's, like, fundamentally, I don't think it's long enough to have taken tropes and turned them on their head at every step of the way. Like, I think it, it just got, tr- I, I think that it's a truncated, cozy mystery. I don't understand why it's seven pages. Like, I, and, and I don't know if there's, like, some sort of um, requirement to be involved. extra spacing between the lines wouldn't have helped it. <laughs> But I do think, like, if you actually... Now, granted, you would need, like, a lot more stuff in this story to make this happen. But the setup is good. The resolution Mm -hmm. is fine. There's just... There's no middle to it. There's no investigation. There's no red herrings. There's no clues. They just tell you what happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things of where... Like you guys said, I liked the setup of this because it had a lot of the hallmarks of a cozy yes. mystery. It had a lot of the buildup that could have been going in the direction. The I most was getting... excited I was in this story was when they started, and I keep furiously trying to flip through these seven pages to figure out where it is. Um, <laughs> and I can't find it. But um, <laughs> but when they where they are they're commenting on the shop across the street. Mm-hmm. That's and the most interesting the part of this story to me. Yes. 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 I was really, for the first few pages, as they were getting the the gradual unlocking of aspects of the relationship, the building element that she's really suppressing the amount of grudge and resentment that she holds for her friend, I thought this was going in directions of, like, you know, a telltale heart or a murder of Roger, Ack- mm-hmm. of Roger Ackroyd kind of thing, mm-hmm. which it was setting that up kind of well, of it going in the direction of what things are you pushed to before you actually start to consider murder? When does resentment bubble over? Which has a lot of the hallmarks of a cozy mystery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... 
it could have gone in that direction if it had been longer, if it had wanted to go in that direction. I think it would have required a little bit more build-up, just to like, continue to emphasize, to continue to emphasize. Uh, and then it could even have ended potentially in the same way. But it doesn't ultimately want to be a mystery. I mean, it's it. There, the only aspect of a mystery is the very brief moment of who done it, but no one's in doubt of that fact. No, no one questions it, which is like and deeply disappointing. I mean, yep. it's it's ultimately isn't a mystery. It's more of just a a so study of the relationship between two friends in terms of how how they functioned and how they ended. I feel like it isn't even that per se because like you you get sort of very brief glimpses. It's a, a fade in in the end of a relationship of two people with a murder mm-hmm. or with a death. It's not even a murder. It's just a death happens and it's a short story. I think the real, um, the misstep in this story, especially <laughs> if you're going to make it, especially if you're going to make it a short story as, as we're reading, is that Delia is a known bad actor mm-hmm. like she needed to be people... sweet as apple pie right right the only person that's in any degree of doubt about it is our main character yes. Ellie. but everybody else knows what happened were you tired of the story before all the kinks were ironed out i mean is this where where we're going with this in the end, I still rather liked it. Mm-hmm. It still has a lot of the hallmarks. It still has a cozy feel. It still tells a successful story. I just feel like there's a certain degree of false advertising at play yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sort of, of curious how it sort of got into this uh, compilation, Parnell Hall's uh, Food Mysteries, or whatever yeah. the, the name of it is. Which we will um, read another story from later in, in our series of these short stories. Not just... Another story, the next story in the compilation, which I thought was really <laughs> funny that they happened to be next to each other. Well, here's a question then. If we're all kind of the opinion that this is a stretch to call this a mystery, mm-hmm. what genre do you think we'd more accurately assign it to? Does it meet some of the hallmarks maybe of a thriller to a limited degree? I know. So what would you, what would you say are the hallmarks of a, of a thriller, Spencer, to put you on the spot? Well, I mean, to, put, to do like the, the Alfred Hitchcock example, it's a it's a known threat that you're waiting to blow kind of thing, of where it's increasingly building tension, it's increasingly a building threat that you're aware of, that you can't fully escape from, and it continues to have that building element of tension. There are aspects of that in here, but it's it's hard to get that really that much of an effective tension pull over seven pages, and though the author does that a bit for like the first half... That's not where the tension ultimately goes. Yeah, my problem with that is that, like, yes, in the first page or so, there is some good building of kind of their relationship, the tension in that relationship, and kind of what that means. But it's the jump is so sudden, I find it difficult to overcome that. This feels like either the... um, the kind of outline of a novel, I would read a novel that is this story actually fleshed out, or even a short, mm-hmm. like an actual, tw- you know, 20 page short story. Yeah. I think that this could easily be. I don't, I, I fundamentally do not understand why this is seven pages. Yeah. I don't know. I, and I don't know if know, it's like th- a requirement that... of the compilation. Because the Maybe. other story I mean, we read from really it is, is also very short. Yeah. Um, uh, I so I don't know if that was a requirement to be included or or what, but like there is such a gap in the middle of I the think story. The requirement. That I just don't understand. I think the requirement is food associated, which this yes, was. Yes. Um, and uh, I don't know. Like I, I guess I would classify this as fiction. And that's it. Wow. I mean, it's just... <laughs> that's a broad descriptor, gotcha. Right, but, like, it, it doesn't have... It is have... a story about non-real events. Thank you. It, But it doesn't have anything else. It's just... It's just short fiction. Yeah, and but, I mean, even to be successful as just, like, a short fiction story, it just needs so much more in the middle. And I think that whether that is, like, a cozy mystery or a fiction story or, you know, whatever it is, is however we might classify it is so dependent on what happens in the middle of the story that does not happen in the actual story. 
I mean, I think it would have been a much better ending. And you could have even, like, sort of classified it as mystery or something if it was just, like... And Ellie decided that next year she would be submitting a savory pie. And just... <laughs> I like... Yeah, Very that's different fine. spin. It, I very much agree with you. It's, it's almost just disappointing to a certain degree because the writer clearly can write. Mm-hmm. She, there's, some good, there's some good descriptions. There's some good build. There's some good character work. We just want her to write more. Just pick a direction and head it. There's a yeah. lot of ways you could have gone with this intro. You just kind of wrapped things up before you could. I would have yeah. read 30 more pages of this story. Um, yeah, I would have read 30 more pages of Ellie ultimately transcending to be the ultimate bad guy of this, or of, you know, explaining more about what the tension between Delia is, or any kind of direction, yeah, really. Yeah, it just doesn't do much in terms of the mystery itself. Like, I don't... I, pure fail on ter- in terms of what a cozy mystery is. Mm-hmm. Well, not a pure yeah. fail. It... it it achieves the cozy to some degree. Yeah. Um, it true. does have it does have cozy down. Yes. It was a it was a pleasant read. There was not it was it flowed well. It even felt quicker than its seven pages. It, I mean, it felt a little. And this is my my metric for a cozy mystery is I want a, a mystery to occur in Stars Hollow. Like, give me a Gilmore Girls mystery, <laughs> and that's what I want. And this does feel this does feel like that. The sort of small town bakery uh, with people who are known with a kind of history with this. Um, kind of competition, like all of that is true, but yeah. there's no m- I, mystery in it. This is one of the things I worry about in terms of doing mystery-based short stories. Agatha Christie did a lot of successful mystery-based short stories, but if you look back through them, none of them are like less than fifteen pages. Yes, you, right. you need time. time. You need time for a mystery to happen. I just need time emotionally mm-hmm. for them. Part of the thing I like about a mystery is just the, the sensation of sinking back into whatever quilt or duvet I'm wrapped in while I'm reading them. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't have time to physically get comfortable for pages. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what else do we have to say about this story? Um, well, if you have I, questions I, or comments. <laughs> Man, so I think, I, I, w- I think next time we should do the same story in this, col- the, the other story in the same collection. That's, That's yeah, I like that. Man, again, I think I will credit, because I think the this, yes. this story does it very well. <laughs> please is please that do, Spencer. The character of Ellie, from what little we get of her, is well portrayed in terms of her herself hiding and suppressing her feelings of resentment towards her yes. friend. Mm-hmm. That's not always easy to do. It's a lot easier to be... It's very, it, a lot of authors stumble with being way too blunt about that or way too early about that. But the fact, in a very short story, we get a very effective build of uncovering more and more the ways of how she's lying to herself about what her actual relationship is. That's actually well-structured and well-set up and well-portrayed. It's just then all the more disappointing that nothing is done with that. Because that's a very successful element as part of the intro of the story. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, like, again, you know, we've talked about short stories and, like, what you need, and she's done two things reasonably well, but it, the, you know, fleshing out some characters and describing a place. But but then you need to have the mystery. Well, like she for, it, yeah, I mean, and you even, even if you're just going to have the place and the characters... Although that wouldn't qualify as a cozy mystery, you mm-hmm. still need time for those to develop. Right. I mean, one thing I almost think is a little bit subversive is just the level of pettiness that's attached into the story. I mean, sure. Every cozy mystery has the triggering act mm-hmm. that brings about the murder. The, the aspect of betrayal, the aspect of subversion, the aspect of treachery. That's a key element of all the story. The act here is baking a pie to enter into the contest. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so... That isn't, we've hit a lot of the elements of Cozy Mystery there. And the fact that that is what triggers the murder is being so off the wall, is being so example of how unhinged her friend is, could be an aspect of subversion of just taking the genre to its most extreme example of a person pushed to their breaking point. Yes. The only problem Maybe. with that is that the, the story has been so short that we don't actually understand how unhinged that is. Because within no, yeah. the scope of the story, that actually seems like sort of reasonable, simply because we've only had you know, like three characterizing points to mm-hmm. begin with. If, if, if you had double the length of the story, preferably even longer than that, sure. to just further do that excellent build that you had in terms of actually having some interactions between the two characters, which we never really get. 
the closest thing we ever get to an interaction before things start to go to hell is uh, Delia realizing that Ellie inserted a pie in the contest. But they still never say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a lot of opportunity then to build up the relationship to then establish earlier the unhinged element or make it more of a surprise later that it wasn't there. Yeah. So I, I guess what we're all kind of coming to is that there are successful building block elements in the story. But there's nothing actually built out of them because they're the only things that are in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this sort of feels like the two sentence horror kind of thing mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. like you're with as little as possible you're trying to evoke as much as possible. Which it I just... blame Hemingway for. Just yeah. writ large. <laughs> um just all things in general or like that specific anyway. Yes, no um... all things in general I blame Hemingway for. <laughs> But the problem with a mystery is, like, you need to set up a mystery to have it be solvable. Yes. And to have it, to have it be solvable in a way that has, that has actual mystery to it. Right. One thing we've discussed doing for this, you know, compilation is at the end, we either do one yes. or each of our fa- yes. favorite Agatha Christie stories yes. and wrap things up. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. This story just hammers home all the more that, yeah, we really need to do yes. that. Yes. We're, go- we're going to need an Agatha Christie palate cleanser after this, guys. I'm going to tell you right yes. now. Uh, I, I want to emphasize for me, in the end, I don't think this story is bad. I, I think there are several things to even say that is good, even to recommend about it to a certain degree. But between the false advertising and it being far too short and not having enough additional pieces to make it ultimately a fully successful story, it's harder to recommend than the mm-hmm. It's a mystery as to why it's a mystery. <laughs> and the closest thing that's ultimately a mystery in the story is, like you noted, whether she's actually holding a grudge and why she's ultimately a friend. And that's... N- not how mysteries work. <laughs> I want to know what the store across the street is doing. You yes. will never know because it is a mystery. All right, so next time we are going to read The Last Word by Sean Riley Simmons. Yes. Which is another Um, food-related mystery. Yep, in the the collection. What's the collection called? Uh, Parnell Hall's uh, Edible Mysteries. uh, Parnell Hall Presents Malice Domestic Mystery Most Edible. And And I I think this is like... Go ahead, BJ, I'm sorry. uh, there are many of these. This is like a continuing series, I think, yes. of short uh, food-related mysteries. And on my list of things that disappointed me about this first of um, of the stories that we're reading that came from this food-related compilation is the fact, and BJ, I think you will agree with me, that there were not more pie-related puns. Yes. You know, that is one aspect of the story that disappointed me in no way. Spencer is I delighted. Was, well, I was perfectly content with that absence. You're just a crusty curmudgeon. And the rocks start flinging. Y'all, this was a fun episode. I'm looking forward to the next one. But in, BJ, if people are looking for more content before we come around to releasing another episode, where can they find it? Uh, you can find everything that we do on MangumTalks.com, such as the aforementioned uh, Queen's Gambit on Mangum Talks TV. Uh, there is also our podcast within a podcast that is sort of its own podcast now, which is Pottering Around, the chapter-by-chapter read of Harry Potter. We are now in The Goblet of Fire, which is Sarah's favorite it of is. the <laughs> series, um, possibly mostly because it's half definitions, um, as well as some lesser-known podcasts, including Mangum Talks Hoops and uh, Mangum Laughs and uh, newly minted uh, podcast and Mangum Watches, where we watch movies um, that you probably shouldn't. Um, but if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, click contact us in the upper right-hand corner. You can also find us on Facebook with uh, under Mangum Reads, as well as, I believe, on Instagram. Brand new, Though I yes. have no idea how that works because I'm over 20. <laughs> I am too, but I've learned, BJ. We are at, at Mangum Talks on Instagram. <laughs> And I'm the crusty curmudgeon, BJ. I'm not unhappy about it or cranky. I just have aged out of it, I guess. I don't know. Anyway. We've learned a lot about each other in these moments. All of your comments and suggestions. Y'all, I'm very much looking forward to the next of these stories, be it good or not. It is a pleasure to talk to y'all about them and for our listeners to tune in with their questions and queries. Until next time.